91.3 KBCS Community Radio, a listener-supported public service of Bellevue College. Check us out at kbcs.fm or subscribe to our podcast wherever you pick them up. David Nywert is a local investigative journalist who has specialized in writing on right-wing extremism, most recently writing for the Daily Coast. He's also been an investigator, analyst, and reporter for the Southern Poverty Law Center. Nywert also is the author of the book, The Age of Insurrection, The Radical Right's Assault on American Democracy. He'll be speaking about the rise and dangers of white supremacy at the Everett Civic Auditorium at 6.30 tonight. I interviewed him last week. Tell me about the current situation in this region when it comes to organized hate groups? Like every other region, it goes through waves of intensity and then silence and low activity. But the Pacific Northwest has had right-wing extremist activity dating back 100 years. I mean, we were a Klan hotbed. We were a hotbed for the uh, for the silver shirts in the 1930s. And then, of course, we became notorious for the Aryan Nations group, moved up from Southern California in the mid-70s, really, and moved up to uh, the Idaho Panhandle. And that attracted a large contingent of not just white supremacists and other right-wing extremists, but also a lot of people who were uh, what I would call sympathetic to them, if even if they weren't exactly explicitly racist themselves or bigoted themselves. The presence of the Aryan nations and other white supremacists in northern Idaho did a lot to create a perception in other places of Idaho as being a very all-white kind of place. That played out in the 80s and 90s and 2000s when we saw a tremendous amount of white flight out of Southern California and Arizona and places like that to Idaho of people who were basically trying to get away from the brown people. They might find different ways of saying it, (laughs) but that's fundamentally what it's about. But the Northwest in general has, we've had all kinds of extremists here hiding out in the woodwork for a long time. And we've, I think there's always been a a live and let live kind of ethos in the culture out here where people are like, okay, you can go ahead and believe that. uh, And uh, I'm not going to necessarily ding you for it, but I won't be your friend either sort of thing. And so a lot of it's festered out here for a long time because, you know, there hasn't really been a whole lot of pushback. And that was certainly why the Aryan Nations people moved up to the Panhandle was that they knew that it was a reasonably hospitable area for them. And now, you know, you find, especially in in northern Idaho, you're finding them specifically recruiting people to move uh, to Idaho to turn the place even further right, you know, making it specifically a political recruitment of, you know, come up to where it's nice and conservative, they'll say. But of course, it's not just conservative, it's actually extremist. And a lot of the people making those uh, appeals are, in fact, over white nationalists and white supremacists, people who have had involvement with the Unite the Right riot in Charlottesville back in 2017, people who were involved in some of the activities that resulted in January 6th. And so we've mishmash out there anyway. 
But it's not just in Idaho and, and that eastern Washington area that's the problem. It's really the whole region has had a lot of uh, extremist activity over the years. So where are we at right now? Well, we're still awash in Proud Boys. We had a real, you know, surge uptick in their membership after 2017 and 2019. And it really was still even climbing all the way up to January 6th. Since January 6th, 2021, we've continued to have Proud Boys marches showing up at you know, school districts to either protest vaccination and masking requirements uh, because they help promote a lot of the conspiracism around uh, COVID-19. And more recently, we've seen them using it to attack the LGBTQ community under the rubric of using this groomer-style rhetoric, accusing people who are gay or transgender of being groomers child molesters, pedophiles. It's a vicious smear. That's what they do. (laughs) These guys specialize in that. It's ongoing. We had a lot of activity in 2022 here in the region with people like Lieutenant General Mike Flynn showing up to lead these uh, waves of white Christian nationalists at rallies where they uh, claimed that Donald Trump had been cheated out of the 2020 election and so on and so forth, and promoting these so-called constitutionalist ideas that have been around on the radical right since the 1970s. This idea that the sheriff is the supreme law of the land. People who call themselves constitutionalists, when you hear that word, look at it with great skepticism because 90% of the time when they call themselves that, they're actually identifying with an ideology that actually has nothing to do with the actual constitution. It's a very wildly conspiracist misreading of the Constitution, and none of the things that they claim the Constitution says are actually in there, including, you may notice, there are these people who go around calling themselves constitutionalist sheriffs or demanding a constitutionalist sheriff. Well, the Constitution says not does not mention sheriffs a single time, nor does it mention county entities a single time. There is no such thing as a constitutional sheriff. But they've created this fiction that is really all about a kind of extreme localism that's meant to defang the ability of the federal government to enforce civil rights laws, to enforce environmental laws, all kinds of other laws, as well as to regulate and help encourage the education establishment. There's quite a range of areas that this kind of extremism reaches into pretty much sure that just about everybody has had some kind of encounter with it in at least one aspect of their lives. Mostly people know people who are absorbed in and overwhelmed by and completely enamored with far-right conspiracy theories, which become an addictive form of belief that uh, has real cult-like qualities to it. We're saying that there's been a steady growth, especially between 2017 and 2019, but arguably through January 6th and and beyond. What are you um, talking about in terms of the numbers? No, well, numbers are really actually hard to come by. And this mm-hmm. is a question that I get a lot. Mm-hmm. You know, how big are these movements? Um, 
What I can tell you is that, uh, I, I mean, the main reason it's hard to get numbers is because they don't really organize as uh, organized hate groups much anymore. Most of the radicalization is going on online. But what we are seeing is really huge audience numbers for people like the white nationalist Nick Fuentes or some of these white nationalists who are operating out of uh, northern Idaho, like Vincent James Fox. They get hundreds of thousands of views on their videos and they have really large audience numbers online. Now, whether they're inflating those or not, it's hard to tell. But what we can say is that when they do attempt to manifest themselves, when they do basically try to take to the streets by doing events like the Proud Boys marches or these anti-LGBT protests in various towns, we've seen pretty substantial numbers. And, and certainly, I think the, the penultimate example of this was the protests around Donald Trump's loss in the in the 2020 election and culminating in January 6th when, you know, we saw 100,000 people out there on the mall. So it's not small. Here's the thing I can tell you. I've been tracking the radical right for three decades now, and I was had a particular interest in, for many years, on domestic terrorism and tracking how right-wing extremists committed acts of domestic terrorism. There's a point at which the question of how, how large are these movements becomes kind of silly because it doesn't take very many of them to wreak a whole hell of a lot of havoc. It only takes one or two of them to walk to the local mall or walk to a, a grocery store in Buffalo or, or walk to a Walmart in El Paso with an AR-15 and start shooting people. There was the the tavern in Colorado Springs. These acts are meant to terrorize people, and they do. They're very effective at terrorizing these target communities. When we look at seeing these audience numbers for people like Fuentes and others who actually advocate this kind of violence on their shows, and we're seeing hundreds of thousands of people succumbing to this stuff and participating in it in his chats and that sort of thing, I would say we need to wake the hell up. That's what I would say. What is the best way to convince the doubters and deniers that, you know, hidden racism and hate groups exist? Well, I would definitely urge them to talk to some of the people who are victimized by these acts. Talk to the families of the people in Buffalo and the families of the people in Colorado Springs who lost loved ones there, or who were themselves unfortunate enough to be present during those things. I can assure you that those people would have a very different perspective on how important it is that we pay attention to this stuff. Because ultimately this is uh, human misery and human suffering. If you're trying to convince me that uh, we pay too much attention to it and that we shouldn't be bothering with it because for whatever reason, if you, you think by ignoring it, it'll go away. Trust me, it won't. I've been down that road too. But if you're trying to convince those people that their suffering and what they endured uh, wasn't important, uh, you'll get an earful and you deserve to. You've been 
uh, writing about this for a very long time, the early 90s? I grew up around some of the stuff. I certainly grew up around writing conspiracism growing up in southeastern Idaho because the John Birch Society was everywhere when I was growing up in the 60s and 70s. And so it was definitely part of my culture in Idaho Falls and, and southern Idaho in general. Um, and then I started, you know, right off the bat, my very first newspaper job up in Sandpoint, Idaho, in the, in the Panhandle back in 1978. It was the very same time that the Aryan Nations moved into that exact that area, just 30 miles down the road at Hayden Lake. And so we, we had a lot of dealings with them. I was the then 21, 22-year-old editor of Sandpoint Daily B, very young hotshot journalist, I thought, at the time. But I sat down with the publisher trying to decide, how are we going to deal with this stuff? And uh, we made what we thought was the sagacious decision not to cover them because, uh, well, they just want attention and we're not going to give it to them. And if we just uh, starve them of oxygen, they'll go away. Well, within the next four years, of course, the whole region was washing all kinds of criminal activity, particularly hate crimes, and then kind of culminating in the 1984 rampage of uh, the neo-Nazi gang, The Order, who robbed 28 banks and assassinated a radio talk show host and finished up with a fiery armed standoff with the FBI on Hoobie Island. What I discovered, of course, was that not only is silence and starving of, of oxygen totally ineffective, they see it as a kind of green light. They see it as tacit acceptance and tacit approval for what they're doing because they also believe that they're standing up for, you know, the real America. And um, and so they, you know, the silence is like, hey, we're, we're actually, the people are really behind this and they just aren't saying so because they're afraid. They're being scared by the Jews is pretty much the attitude of white supremacists. It became obvious that the key is to, to shine a spotlight on them. And because then they scatter, they actually get real defensive. They run high. They, they pretend that they're not there. They'll do all kinds of things. And mostly they will lie their, <laughs> their butts off to, to uh, try to cover their tracks. That was when I definitely changed my approach to dealing with right-wing extremists. Uh, I have definitely some careful techniques that I use, uh, certain ethical standards and repertorial standards that I try to adhere to when I write about them. The key thing is not to just give them carte blanche, accidental promotion, to not just, you know, write down what they say and report that. It's important in the case of these kinds of extremists to contextualize everything that they say and help readers understand what it is that they are actually communicating, what their actual intentions are. Because the thing about right-wing extremists, and particularly neo-Nazis and fascists, is that they're just liars. They're, they're just inveterate liars. They will never tell you the truth. And so... Trying to get the word from them directly is often just futile because they'll just lie. They lie, lie, lie. So it's important to go around and, and get a, a broader perspective and understand what the truth is about what the things that they're claiming and what they're saying. And that's part of the context that I try to provide as a reporter. 
And over the years, I, you know, got better at that. It's, it's always a work in progress and nobody's ever a perfect journalist. But I did learn a lot about how to handle this kind of stuff over the years. My next question was, what's the most challenging thing about this work? And it sounds like the navigating of the lying. What are yeah. the most challenging aspects of this work? There are a couple of aspects. One of them is that one of the things you learn early on is that um, rhyming extremists are surprisingly normal seeming. They look and talk just like your neighbors. They don't grow horns. They aren't all wearing uh, black leathers and have swastika tattoos, you know, which is kind of our <laughs> what people think of the image people come up with in their minds when they hear white supremacists. And so part of what I'll be talking about to the audience in, in Everett is, you know, the, the real long history of how actually white supremacism a century ago was the normal way of thinking for people in, in the United States and particularly for white people. It was embedded in their view of the world. They had this idea that there's a natural hierarchy for societies to climb as they um, went through periods of you know improvement and sophistication. And the final culmination of that, of course, is white European civilization. Others were inferior for various different reasons. White ethno-nationalism was very much the standard way of thinking. Of course, they didn't call it that back then. They just uh, called it white supremacy. After the Holocaust, when we saw the, the cost of white supremacy, of what white supremacy actually brings us, what it wreaks, that's when the world turned away from white supremacism and embraced multiculturalism, which is what... It arose as a reaction to and a response to a white supremacy. Multiculturalism is actually just basic common sense anymore, especially the realization that, you know, race doesn't impart uh, actual characteristics to a person, that, uh, that, that that's not part of what happens in the genetics of race. Uh, you know, there's still a million people out there who believe that uh, a person's race determines their character. And that's uh, what we continue to fight against. There's a lot of crit critics of multiculturalism these days, people attacking critical race theory and that sort of thing. We're really seeing a resurgence in the belief in white supremacy and it's also important to understand that as sort of founding father of both modern anthropology and the sort of guiding light of multiculturalism, a guy named Franz Boas, who worked in the Pacific Northwest early in his career in the 1890s and developed a lot of his ideas by working with the Kwakwakiwak and other uh, Northwest coastal tribes. What Boas was always saying was that the these hierarchies that white supremacy presumes are actually fraudulent and that there isn't a natural progression for human culture. Uh, I think Boas is, this is something from Race and Democratic Society, sorry, which is, he says, the behavior of an individual is determined not by his racial affiliation, but by the character of his ancestry and his cultural environment. And as and Boas is, was always really adamant that uh, having a multicultural approach to race 
was fundamental to the health and well-being of, of a democratic society. So the, the, I've always seen the pushback against multiculturalism as also an attempt to undermine, you know, really foundational democratic institution. You were talking about, like you said, no horns coming out of heads, you know, just neighbor kind of people, right? What's a way to, and I guess it depends on whether you're a person of color or another agnostic white person, you know, in the neighborhood, um, given what you know about these hate groups, how do you see, like, if you have a neighbor who you're talking with and you start figuring out that they are in a hate group and it's a spectrum. So I don't there know. There is a really broad spectrum. It's, it's hard to tell because in most cases, I would say the vast majority of situations like that you'll encounter, they they're mostly have gone down conspiracy theory rabbit holes. And exactly which rabbit holes they've gone down and how deeply they've gone down them has a lot to do with just how extremist they are. If they've gone all the way down into the neo-Nazi rabbit holes where, you know, Jews secretly run the world and we need to put them all back into concentration camps, then you're dealing with, you know, some really toxic stuff. Or it could be just somebody who believes theories about who actually won the election in 2020 and how the Constitution actually works and what kinds of powers the sheriff, local sheriff actually has and that sort of thing that aren't necessarily directed at expressing bigotry towards minority or vulnerable minorities. I think that's the sort of the other end of the range of extremism, but there's a whole spectrum in between those two spots that you'll encounter out there. And mostly I, I would just say, you know, once you start hearing crazy stuff coming out of people's mouths, just uh, follow it with care, uh, pay attention to what they're actually saying, uh, research what they're talking about, ascertain, because 99% of the time there's some, some serious factual issues <laughs> to, you know, around a lot, a lot of the stuff these folks will spew. But not only that, but, you know, it's it will also sort of give you a gauge of uh, where their extremism is based and how far it will go. For some people, when they get into, especially when if they start talking about civil war and wanting to kill all the liberals and they've got AR-15s and ammo in their basement, uh, then, then I think, you know, you, you need to move with extreme caution. The dynamics are are different than before. And so, you know, how do you stay safe or, you know, and it is your neighborhood, so you're living there and so forth. So these are the kinds of things I think that people are um, starting to navigate. Um, and then some people will respond by trying to share more of their ideas. Is that a useful use of time? Can you change minds? Or is it that, you know, you just become careful? Depends on how much you care about them. Trying to change uh, an extremist's mind is really a fraught enterprise. Uh, it can put you actually at risk. If you're going to get into the process of trying to de-radicalize someone, uh, it really needs to be someone you care about uh, because you, otherwise you're A, going to have a really hard time doing it, and B, uh, it may not be worth your time uh, because you're going to put yourself at more risk than you are 
actually able to achieve a positive result. What are ways that people can stay safe if if they feel like it's getting into a more dangerous <laughs> place? Um, I don't know. I think it, uh, that there is strength in numbers. I think that actually the reality is that we outnumber these folks by quite a bit, and which is why I'm not pessimistic about our long-term prospects. Uh, but I do think we have a huge fight in front of us to, you know, to straighten this out too. And it's going to be really long and difficult because our information stream has become so polluted with disinformation and conspiracism uh, that we are really in what I would call an epistemological crisis right now. We can't even ascertain among ourselves what's true and what's not. I mean, just think of what's happened in the last week, or, uh, coming the information coming out of Israel and Gaza. And that's just a small sample size. It's been constant for the past six years, at least, if not longer. That kind of epistemic crisis really uh, gnaws at the foundations of democracy. It means that democracy can't function right because we can't have proper democratic discourse informed by facts and logic and reason. We instead have this democratic discourse that just, uh, it's not democratic, it's just yelling at each other and it's not discourse, it's just, it's just chaos. I think we need to look at ways to straighten out our information environment. And we need to definitely reform both the, you know, both social media and I think corporate media. Because right now what's really painfully clear is that uh, corporate media, and I'm thinking particularly of Fox News, have figured out that it's actually more profitable for them to cause turmoil and division in the country, to split the country apart, is actually an incredibly profitable way to, to make revenues. And you know their revenue stream is based on tearing us apart. Well, there's something really sick and wrong about that, and we need to get rid of those incentives. When you say normal way of thought before, there are a lot of people who are nostalgic for the 1950s. So what, what would you say to someone who is like, well, in the 1950s, the economy was better? And what do you say to someone who is being nostalgic of quote-unquote, stability that they felt in the 50s and so forth? I mean, there certainly are things to be nostalgic about uh, from that time period, including the, uh, you know, 74% uh, uh, <laughs> marginal tax rate <laughs> on, on extreme wealth. I, I wish we could get that part back. Um, but yeah, what they're saying is it was good for you because part, partly because it was good for you at the expense of people of color. When you look at the housing policies that were enforced, the way that the, the VA, for instance, you know, right at right after the war, and first I can assure you that in the period before the war, white supremacy and eugenics were absolutely sort of the predominant worldview. It wasn't until after the war when we started to abandon them, but people were very slow to discard it, and so. The a lot of the attitudes inherent in you know white supremacist eugenics, especially, very much played out in the way we did handled immigration in this country, in the way we have handled tax codes, 
the way we've handled housing laws, and the way we've handled voting rights. It was, yeah, it was maybe great for white folks. It sure wasn't good for people of color. <laughs> I, can, I can guarantee you that. You know, talk to anybody who was a black voter who was trying to register to vote in the South in the 1950s. Go watch the movie Selma if you think it wasn't a problem. There was a whole period of struggle that came out of that. And even after that, the struggle has continued. Yeah, it may have been good for you, but that well-being was often at the expense of other people. I think particularly the example that I have in mind is the way that the, the Veterans Administration policies at the time made it very easy for white veterans to go and buy a new home after uh, they got out of the service. And they can get loans, and, and uh, a lot of times they get uh, you know, student scholarships and that sort of thing, as well as, yeah, cheap tuition, go get a college degree. And those very same laws specifically excluded Black people. And we forget that. As did, you know, the, the redlining uh, that went on at the time where, where, you know, real estate agents wouldn't show neighborhood, certain neighborhoods to black folks. And, and I can assure you that uh, Bellevue was definitely one of those places <laughs> you know, the, where real estate agents weren't showing black people those, uh, those nice homes in those white neighborhoods. Because uh, those neighborhoods were specifically designed, like most suburbs, post-1930 were actually designed to be places for white people to get away from people of color. They usually had covenants that excluded people of color as well as Jews. Bellevue, you play, there were places, neighborhoods north of Seattle uh, that uh, as well that, that had those kinds of policies in place that had those kind of prohibitions in place. And some of it was just de facto. Back in the 1950s and 60s, if you were a young black man and you showed up on the streets of Seattle north of the Ship Canal after dark, uh, you're, the cops pulled over and put you in a car and took you back to wherever it was you came from. This was a very common sort of behavior. And yeah, there was, you know, policing was discriminatory, housing was discriminatory, uh, you know, a lot of the business practices were discriminatory as well. Do you feel optimistic about the future? I would say I'm neither optimistic nor pessimistic. I think that American democracy is facing just really unprecedented challenges, unprecedented attacks on its, its foundational institutions right now from authoritarian organizations and entities and movements. People who want to displace our democratic society with an authoritarian one. And I'm really I'm dismayed constantly by how little <laughs> how, how little we seem to recognize that, particularly in the media. I don't think that my colleagues in the media understand that we aren't going to be doing journalism, certainly as we have known it for most of the last century, if we are living in an autocracy. We're going to be doing propaganda. And unfortunately, because of the corporate ownership of so much of our modern media system, I think that we've developed a real blind spot to that intentionally. I think that corporations are all too happy to let us get subsumed by authoritarianism because 
they actually prefer authoritarianism itself, although I don't think they understand how they're actually also killing the goose that lay the golden egg by doing that. They think, oh yeah, it's, let's, let's get all these people under control with a good authoritarian system, which is, I think, the thinking of, of a lot of the money people. And I don't think they understand that their whole system of wealth is predicated on freedom that Americans enjoy through democratic power because democratic power is what safeguards their freedoms and enables their freedoms and gives them a political voice and gives them political power. And that's what these authoritarians are trying to take away. Way too many people in the media are just very complaisant about what this actually means and about the fact that we are facing this real threat. I think that there's also a real impulse by people to deny that we're in this kind of turmoil and that we face this kind of dire situation and desire to pretend everything's normal. Trust me, I've been told so many times over the last 20 years that I'm being an alarmist and that I'm exaggerating. And then everything that I've warned about has come largely true, ranging from the election of Donald Trump and, and the rise of these radical right street thug movements like the Proud Boys and the Patriot Front to January 6th and the ongoing aftermath of the what I call the hundred little insurrections that are taking place in towns and counties and states across America right now. That was David Nywart, local investigative journalist and author. His most recent book is The Age of Insurrection, The Radical Rights Assault on American Democracy. Nywart will speak at the Everett Civic Auditorium this evening at 6.30. The event is free of charge. For more information, you can visit nowseattle.org and look up events. For more KBCS stories and to support our work with a donation, you can visit kbcs.fm.